Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 15, question and answer 38 and 39. Why did he suffer under Pontius Pilate as judge? That he, being innocent and yet condemned by a temporal judge, might thereby free us from the severe judgment of God to which we were exposed. Is there anything more in his being crucified than if he had died some other death? Yes, there is, for thereby I am assured that he took on him the curse which lay upon me, for the death of the cross was accursed of God. Beloved, Pontius Pilate was an historical figure. He served as the governor of Judea under the Roman Emperor Tiberius from about 26 to 36 AD, so about 10 years. In the providence of God, he wielded the power of the sword in Judea when Jesus of Nazareth was arrested and tried before the Jewish Sanhedrin in 33 AD. And we confess in the Apostles' Creed, he suffered under Pontius Pilate. Before we consider, though, Pilate's role in the sufferings of Jesus, we should see Jesus' sufferings before he stood before Pilate. Which sufferings really brought him to that position when he would stand before Pilate? Last time, we noticed in connection with answer 37 that Jesus suffered his whole life long. And during his whole life, says the Catechism, he sustained in body and soul the wrath of God against the sins of all mankind. And so God imputed our sins to Jesus at the very beginning of his life so that he carried the burden of guilt his whole life long and suffered or experienced misery because of that guilt that was upon him. And yet the same catechism says that he did this, especially at the end of his life. And we speak of the Passion Week, that last week of his life when he enters Jerusalem and prepares for his death. That's called the Passion Week because that's when Jesus' sufferings intensified. The last hours of the last week of Jesus' life, that's when he suffered the most. That's when his sufferings reached a peak. And Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, played a very important role in inflicting those sufferings, so much so that the 
creed, the earliest creed of the Christian church, which is still used today, the Apostles' Creed, says he suffered under Pontius Pilate. Notice then, confessing Christ's sufferings under Pontius Pilate. Notice first, judicial sufferings. He was a judge. Second, accursed sufferings. He sent them to be crucified. And third, saving sufferings. By means of those sufferings, God has saved us. Jesus' sufferings, beloved, began in earnest, you might say, in Gethsemane. In anticipation of the dreadful agonies to come, Jesus says in Gethsemane to his disciples in Matthew 26, 38, my soul is exceeding sorrowful even unto death. Luke 22:44 tells us, and being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Jesus' agony in Gethsemane was anticipatory. He was anticipating what was going to happen next. It had not yet happened, but as it were, God gave him a glimpse into the cup of suffering which he had to drink, which suffering he had to endure on the cross. And when Jesus saw that, his holy soul shrank back in horror. And he even asked in prayer if there were perhaps a way to avoid that suffering. Could the cup of suffering and wrath perhaps pass from him? And yet, he placed his own human will under the Father's will and says in Matthew 26, 42, O oh, my Father, if this cup may not pass away from me except I drink it, thy will be done. And having anticipated the sufferings, then the sufferings begin. In Gethsemane, Jesus was arrested. Judas Iscariot, one of his 12 disciples, betrayed him with a kiss, which was a hurtful indignity. Peter, another of his disciples, foolishly attempted to rescue Jesus with the edge of the sword, which earned him a rebuke from Jesus. And later, that same evening, Peter denied him three times. Jesus then willingly surrendered himself to his captors, did not attempt to run away, did not resist arrest, as so many in our day do, but rather he willingly gave himself into the power of his 
enemy, saying to them in Luke 22:53, When I was daily with you in the temple, ye stretched forth no hands against me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. And then Jesus was bound and led away to the palace of the high priest. So Gethsemane, and next we go to the palace of the high priest. In the palace of the high priest, Jesus suffered innumerable reproaches. His trial took place before the Jews, before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council, and his trial was in many ways illegal. The Jews really tore up the rule book when it came to the trial of Jesus, mainly because this whole event took them by surprise. They were not expecting to have to organize hurriedly at the last minute a trial of Jesus. They expected to arrest him quietly and kill him quietly after the feast was over, but their hands had been forced. And so they organized very hastily a trial. Think of the illegal aspects of the trial. First of all, the trial took place at night. Jesus was arrested at night, and then he was taken immediately to trial. A capital trial where you're seeking for the death penalty. And remember, the death penalty was a foregone conclusion in this trial. A capital trial must take place during the day. Second, the trial took place hurriedly. A capital trial, again, where you're looking for the death penalty, requires careful, methodical work. It may not be hurried. Both sides of the case must be fairly heard and fairly judged. But in Jesus' trial, there was no witness brought forth for the defense. And after the evidence is weighed, a verdict should be reached only after very careful deliberation and certainly not on the same day. That was also illegal. Third, there was a deliberate perversion of justice since the Jews sought false witnesses against Jesus. And these false witnesses were so inept that their story fell apart under cross-examination to the frustration of Jesus' accusers. And finally, Jesus was condemned on the basis of his own testimony, his own true testimony. He was placed under oath. The high priest, in an act of desperation, did this because he could get no other way to accuse him. He was placed under oath, and Jesus confessed under oath that he was and is indeed the Christ, the Son of the living God. And the high priest and the Sanhedrin with him, they hated that answer, they refused to believe that answer, and horrified, the high priest shouts out, He hath spoken blasphemy. What further need have we of witnesses? Behold, we have heard his blasphemy, Matthew 26, 65. 
on the basis of that supposed blasphemy, Jesus was judged worthy of death. No surprise, that was a foregone conclusion. That's what they wanted at the beginning. And having secured what they wanted, a guilty verdict, they behave now like savage beasts. They spat in his face. They beat him with their hands. They mocked him. Probably they had him blindfolded. They mocked him saying, prophesy unto us, thy Christ, who is he that smote thee? And having had their fun with him, they then confined him to prison until the morning. And they fetched him early in the morning out of prison, perhaps as early as 6 a.m., and they brought him before Pontius Pilate, because Pilate was necessary for the next part of the plan of the Sanhedrin. In the providence of God, beloved, at this time in history, the Jews had been deprived of the power of the sword. Without the permission of the Romans, the Jews may not, at this time in history, may not put any man to death. Now, the penalty for blasphemy was death, but the Jews could not inflict that penalty upon Jesus themselves. They had to find a way for Pilate to authorize the execution of Jesus. And they wanted Jesus to die under the force of law. And so they brought him to Pilate, who was a judge. The catechism refers to Pilate as a temporal judge. A temporal judge is a judge who deals in the affairs of time and history. A judge in history, as opposed to the everlasting or eternal judge, who is God. In Pilate's hands then, in God's providence again, in Pilate's hands were life and death. He had the power of the sword, as Romans 13 puts it. He says this to Jesus in John 19, verse 10. Jesus is not answering his questions. Pilate becomes exasperated and says to him, Knowest thou not that I have power to crucify thee and have power to release thee? And thus he says, Look, I am the judge, I have authority. I have the sword power. I can, if I wish, release you. I can, if I wish, put you to death. You better speak to me. Thus, he tried to intimidate Jesus. Jesus does not disagree. But he reminds Pilate of God's sovereignty. Thou couldst have no power at all against me except it were given thee from above. Therefore he that delivered me unto thee hath the greater sin. Notice, by the way, that Jesus does not refuse to recognize the authority of Pilate. 
There are some who do that. I refuse to recognize the authority of the court. Jesus does not refuse to recognize the authority of Pilate. He does recognize that authority, and he does submit to that authority, but at the same time, he insists on the sovereignty of God, and that gives Jesus peace as he stands before this judge. And that gives the child of God peace also. Whenever we are called to stand before a temporal judge. Whatever a temporal judge might say, we are righteous before the eternal judge. And so we don't have to try to defend ourselves or overthrow the whole judicial system because we commit ourselves to God who is sovereign over temporal judges. Here's what Peter says about Jesus in 1 Peter 2, verse 23. When he was reviled, he reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judges, judgeth righteously. Pilate judged unrighteously, unjustly, and wickedly. Jesus committed himself to the righteous God, knowing that the righteous God would act righteously, even if Pilate acted wickedly. And we must do that too. When men speak evil of us falsely, when men accuse us unfairly, we would like to defend ourselves. We would like to vindicate our name but better to commit our way and to commit our name and reputation to the righteous judge. He knows, he will judge, he will do what is right. So the Jews bring Jesus to Pilate. But the Jews have a problem. They know that Pilate is going to be reluctant to take on this case. They have to convince Pilate to take the case. And therefore, they must come with charges against Jesus. Charges that will actually fit as far as Pilate is concerned. Because remember, they have judged him according to their law. And they have said he is guilty of blasphemy. Because he calls himself Christ, the Son of God of God. But that will not work. That charge will not work because the Romans have no interest in religious charges. The charge then that they bring against Jesus is not he's guilty of blasphemy, that's a religious charge, but rather they say in Luke 23 verse 2, they say he says that he himself is Christ a king. There's the charge. He calls himself Christ a king. That accusation concerned Pilate because it was his job in Judea to make sure that there were no rivals to the kingship of the Roman emperor and thus to eliminate all possible rivals. And so Pilate takes that accusation seriously and he questions Jesus in John 18. 
But soon he realizes, Pilate does, that Jesus is no threat to the peace and security of the Roman Empire. Because having questioned Jesus, Jesus explains to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. Yes, I'm a king. Yes, I confess that I'm a king. But my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is a kingdom of truth. My kingdom is such a kingdom where my servants do not fight to seek my release from you. A kingdom of truth, a kingdom of righteousness, a heavenly kingdom, a kingdom not of this world. Well, Pilate had no idea what that meant and didn't care what that meant because he understood this Jesus is not planning to overthrow the Roman garrison in Jerusalem and to overthrow the emperor in Rome, and therefore he is of no threat to Rome. And therefore he is guilty of no crime, and therefore he should be let go. And that's Pilate's conclusion. Multiple times he says it. Luke 23, verse 4, I find no fault in this man. Luke 23, verse 14, Behold, I, I, having examined him before you, have found no fault in this man. Luke 23, 22, I have found no cause of death in him. John 18, 38, I find in him no fault at all. John 19, verse 4, I find no fault in him. And John 19, verse 6, I find no fault in him. Why the repeated testimony concerning the innocence and lack of fault and lack of crime in Jesus? The Catechism calls our attention to this. Answer 38. He being innocent and yet condemned by a temporal judge. Jesus was innocent. He was guilty of no sin. He was guilty of no crime. We must know that. We must be assured of that. We must be convinced of that because our salvation depends upon that. Our salvation depends upon the innocence of Jesus. Because if Jesus is not actually innocent, then he's guilty of sin, he's guilty of some crime against the Roman government, and therefore he dies deservedly. And therefore he cannot be the mediator. The mediator must be a perfectly righteous man who is also true God, and then being the mediator and having the qualifications of the mediator, he then is able to make perfect satisfaction for our sins. And God wants us to know that. And God, as it were, underlines that and puts it in bold print in the Bible. My son Jesus is innocent. I testify to his innocence. Pilate, a competent judge who examines him carefully, testifies multiple times to his innocence. Pilate, too, 
represents the world. The world is involved in the judgment, in the trial, in the sufferings of Jesus. There's the church, the false church, and the false church is the Jewish nation, and the leaders of that Jewish nation. And then there's the world, the church, the false church, and the world together condemn Jesus Christ. Pilate represents the power of the world. The world of the Gentiles, the ungodly, unbelieving, heathen world. And so the, the false church and the ungodly world conspire together to destroy this Jesus Christ. And yet, God is judging the world in this. God condemns the world in this. And that's God's purpose in all of this too. The false church and the ungodly world must be shown to be wicked and condemned before God. God confronts the false church and God confronts the wicked world with a question which they did not want to face. What will you do with Jesus, the Son of God? What will you do when he comes to you in a way in which he comes under your power for a time? What will you do when I put him in your power for a little while? When he becomes a man and is able to suffer, what will you do to him? Will you honor him as you are commanded to honor my son, even as I, the father, am honored? Or will you dishonor him? Will you believe in him or will you reject and despise him? And this question, beloved, did not come to some group of savages in some jungle out there. This question came to the Jews. And the Jews, remember, were God's people throughout the Old Testament and the Jews had all the promises of the Old Testament and the Jews had the scriptures and the Jews had the law of God and the Jews knew all of these things and the Jews knew that the Messiah was going to come and that question came to them and they said we'll spit in his face we'll buffet him we'll call him a blasphemer and we'll deliver him to Pilate that question came to the Romans the Romans were proud of their jurisprudence, their whole system of law and order. The Romans had crafted a system of justice in which the accused could face his accusers, in which there was a presumption of innocence, in which all the evidence was carefully weighed. If Jesus could expect justice in any courtroom, Surely it was this one. And yet, of course, we know what happens. We know that Jesus, although he was declared innocent multiple times, was yet 
condemned by a temporal judge. And thus, the world was judged and found wanting. And thus, Jesus says in John 12, before he goes to Jerusalem, or before he goes to the cross, he says in John 12, John 12, 31, 32, Now is the judgment of this world. Not now is my judgment, but now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. A reference to the devil, the prince of this world. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. Notice first there that the world is on trial in the judgment of Jesus, and the world fails, it's found guilty. Notice second that the prince of the world is also on trial, Satan is on trial, he is cast out. And third, notice that the outcome of the trial is known to Jesus already. He is willing to submit to it. He knows he will be lifted up, which refers to his death on the cross. That's John's explanation in verse 33. This he said, signifying what death he should die. So the trial served to prove and demonstrate the innocence of Jesus. The trial served to judge and condemn the world and the world's prince. And the trial had another purpose. The trial is the instrument of Jesus' condemnation. It's the means by which God himself condemns Jesus. Answer 38 again, that he being innocent and yet condemned by a temporal judge. Pilate condemned him. Pilate, as we know from the history, was reluctant to do that. Pilate knew very early on that Jesus was innocent and that he had been delivered to him only out of envy, the envy of the Jewish leaders. And Pilate tried various ways to avoid having to make a judgment on this case, to avoid having to condemn Jesus. But in the end, he condemned him anyway. He sent him to Herod, trying to fob off the case to Herod. Herod sent him back. He offered to chastise him and let him go. In itself, that was unjust, to chastise, to whip, to scourge an innocent man. He then tried to persuade the people to release Jesus and crucify Barabbas. But the people chose Barabbas over Jesus. In the end, in some act of desperation, he tries to wash his hands of the affair. But Pilate stands responsible for the condemnation of Jesus because, as he says himself, I have power to release thee and I have power to crucify thee. And Pilate chose, because he was weak and cowardly and unjust, Pilate chose to crucify Jesus. And in so doing, God's word is heard. 
God's word was in the sentence of condemnation. It's not merely that Pilate said, crucify him, away with him. Pilate did say that, although reluctantly he said that. He did give the order in the end to crucify him. But when the command came to crucify Jesus, God was speaking. God was saying, through that word of Pilate, God was saying about Jesus, crucify him, away with him, he is worthy of death. God said that about his beloved son. Why did God say that? How is it possible for God to say that about Jesus Christ? And the answer is, because he was viewing Jesus Christ from the perspective of our sins. Our sins had been imputed to Jesus, and in the sight of God, Jesus was guilty of our sins. So that the sentence of condemnation comes upon Jesus. It had to come upon Jesus, because if it did not come upon Jesus, it had to come upon us. And so Jesus, being the substitute, willingly stands in our place and takes that sentence of condemnation upon himself. And Paul speaks of this briefly in 1 Timothy 6, verse 13. I give thee charge in the sight of God, who quickeneth all things, and before Christ Jesus, who before Pontius Pilate witnessed a good confession. What was that good confession that Jesus witnessed before Pontius Pilate? Pilate. You could say that Jesus didn't say very much before Pontius Pilate. In fact, the gospel accounts indicate that he was mostly silent before Pontius Pilate. He spoke about his kingdom in John 18, for example, but for most of the time, he stood before Jesus, as Isaiah puts it, as a sheep before her shears is dumb, so opened he not his mouth. That was his confession. His silence was his confession. His refusal to open his mouth was his confession. His refusal to mount a defense was his confession. He had no need to open his mouth, of course, because... It was the role of the judge and the accusers to prove his guilt. He was not required to prove his innocence. They had to prove his guilt, and his innocence was obvious. But he stood there and silently confessed a good confession. And that good confession of silence was this, I am willing to die. I am not going to refuse to die. I embrace death for my people. I am willing to submit to death, 
to submit to the fifth commandment, to submit to the authority of Pilate, willingly and patiently to suffer. And that spoke to Pilate much more than words could ever have done. That was his good confession before Pontius Pilate. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. A judge was necessary then to testify to Jesus' innocence, and a judge was necessary to be the means by which Jesus was condemned, and a Roman judge was necessary to authorize a particular kind of death penalty. If Jesus had in other, other times when the Romans were not in charge, if Jesus had stood before a Jewish court and had been condemned to death, he would have been taken out and stoned to death. But Jesus was crucified. And crucifixion was a Roman form of execution. Crucifixion was designed by the Romans to be a fearful kind of death. The kind of death that would intimidate people and would act as a deterrent to all would-be offenders, rebels, revolutionaries, murderers, robbers, and the like. In fact, the Romans would often come into a city and crucify a dozen people or so, and that would quell any possible rebellion. No one wanted to be crucified. Crucifixion was fearful for a number of reasons. Number one, it was extremely painful. We speak of excruciating pain. Well, the word excruciating comes from the word crucify. Excruciating pain is extreme, severe pain. A man was nailed to a piece of wood. He was then hoisted into the air and would hang upon that piece of wood and he would be left to die in agony. And the cause of death was a combination of exhaustion, blood loss, and especially this, asphyxiation. Being stretched, as it were, on that piece of wood made it very difficult to breathe. And the effort of trying to breathe while being stretched out on a piece of wood hanging in the air was excruciating. The psalmist describes this in Psalm 22, prophetically, looking forward to the cross. Psalm 22, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted in the midst of my bowels. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaveth to my jaws. And thou hast brought me into the dust of death, 
For dogs have compassed me. The assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. And second, crucifixion was fearful because it was slow. Excruciating pain is one thing, if it can be shortened. But crucifixion was deliberately designed to be a kind of slow torture. It was not uncommon for a man to hang on a cross for many hours, sometimes even days, sometimes weeks, before he finally succumbed to death. And Jesus was on the cross, suffering these agonies in body and soul for six hours, which was quite a short period of time in comparison to others who had died on crosses. So much so that Pilate was surprised to hear that Jesus had died so quickly. But six hours of uninterrupted agonies from 9 a.m. until 3 p.m., that's fearful. The Catechism asks the question, is there anything more in his being crucified than if he had died some other death? Been stabbed to death, been stoned to death, been poisoned, drowned, whatever else. And there are two answers to this question. One of them is directly in the Catechism, and the other one is implied. First of all, crucifixion is accursed. Accursed. God's curse is upon the one who is crucified. God's curse is the word of God's wrath. God's wrath is his anger, his burning anger against sin. God's curse is the opposite of God's blessing. God's blessing is the word of his grace, the word of his favor. When God blesses, he speaks well of someone. When God blesses, he pronounces good upon someone. When God blesses, he speaks a good word, a word of salvation upon someone. But the curse is the opposite of the blessing. When God curses, he speaks evil of someone. When God curses, he pronounces evil upon someone. When God curses, he speaks against a person in his wrath, in the fierceness of his anger. God's curse then makes a person unspeakably miserable. And the end of God's curse is the everlasting misery of hell, which really has no end then. In Matthew 25, 41, Jesus says to the wicked on the day of judgment, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. God said to his people in the Old Testament, My curse is upon the crucified man even though crucifixion did not actually exist yet in the days of Moses as a form of execution. In Deuteronomy 21, 
We read these words at the end of that chapter. And if a man have committed a sin worthy of death, and he be to be put to death, and thou hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night upon the tree, but thou shalt in any wise bury him that day, for he that is hanged is accursed of God, that thy land be not defiled, which the Lord thy God giveth thee for an inheritance. You have that phrase in parentheses. He that is hanged is accursed of God. Now the idea in Deuteronomy 21 is not crucifixion. The idea in that chapter is death by stoning, after which the dead body of that offender is hanged publicly on a tree as a warning to others who might think of sinning in a similar manner. And God says about that dead body hanging on the tree, it's cursed. That dead body hanging on the tree is cursed. God's curse is upon that person. And therefore, that cursed body should not be hanging on that tree overnight. But bury it, says God. Bury it the same day. You don't want the curse to defile the land which God gives to you. God curses that person. And that's clear for us to understand because the idea is that person being cursed, there's no room for him on the earth. And there's no place for him in heaven either. He is suspended now between earth and heaven. And the only place for that man is hell. Hell is the place of God's curse. And Jesus, being crucified, which is like being hanged, because one is hanged on a piece of wood... And in Hebrew, the word tree and wood are the same thing. Hanged on a piece of wood, being crucified, is the same as being hanged, and therefore is the same as one who is cursed. And so Jesus, to bear in his body and soul God's curse against sin, was hanged on a tree, was crucified. But second... Crucifixion allowed Jesus to do something that being stoned to death and then hanged on a tree after death would not allow him to do. Crucifixion allowed Jesus consciously and deliberately and over a long period of time to bear and experience God's curse. To take, as it were, that curse upon himself and to experience it and to taste the bitterness of it. In Deuteronomy 21, the hanged person is already dead. He's been stoned to death for some sin, murder, adultery, blasphemy, or whatever else. And then his dead body is hanged on a tree to display God's just curse. Well, crucifixion is worse than that because in crucifixion, a man hangs on a tree and is still alive and is still conscious 
and is alive and conscious for many hours, experiencing the misery of God's curse. And that was Jesus. He was alive. He was conscious. He experienced. He tasted God's curse. He consciously and deliberately, by doing that, offered himself a sacrifice to God. And again, that makes him different from the Old Testament sacrifices. The Old Testament sacrifices didn't consciously and deliberately offer themselves a sacrifice to God. Their lives were taken from them violently. Their throat was cut and their blood was shed and sprinkled and their body was burned upon the altar. But Jesus, he deliberately and willingly gave himself to be a sacrifice. He says in John 10, 18, no man taketh it from me, my life, no man taketh my life from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my father. Jesus then died in such a way that over the course of about six hours, he willingly and consciously poured out his life and died at the exact moment that his Father in heaven had determined for him, willingly giving his life. And that makes the life and the death of Jesus unique. When we die, our life is taken from us. We don't die willingly. We struggle to stay alive. Jesus willingly laid down his life. Jesus took the curse of God to himself, and God used Pilate as a willing instrument in his hand to bring Jesus to the place of the curse, which was the cross, where he suffered the pains and miseries of crucifixion and God's curse. Now, undoubtedly, many people suffered under Pontius Pilate during his 10-year tenure as governor of Judea from 26 to 36 AD. We know from history that Pilate was a cruel man. He sent many men to die upon crosses. He slaughtered men in the temple, for example. And on the day of Jesus' crucifixion, he sent two other men, two malefactors, to die on crosses as well. What then makes Jesus' sufferings under Pontius Pilate unique? Well, first, Jesus' sufferings are not the sufferings of a mere man. And they're not the sufferings of a malefactor. They're the sufferings of the Son of God, our mediator in human flesh. When Jesus suffered, the Son of God suffered in his human body and soul. And that gives them dignity and power and saving efficacy. And second, by his sufferings, Jesus accomplished our salvation. That's the emphasis of the catechism, you'll notice, because the catechism seeks to comfort us. That's the whole theme of the catechism. 
In the words of the Catechism, he redeemed us from everlasting damnation, obtained for us the favor of God, righteousness, and eternal life. That's answer 37. He freed us from the severe judgment of God, answer 38. Jesus stood before a temporal judge to be scrutinized, examined, and ultimately condemned to free us from the severe judgment of God. And God's severe judgment is his strict, righteous evaluation of and punishment of our sins. God scrutinizes our thoughts, our words, our deeds. God examines our nature and God judges it to be sinful, perverse, polluted and defiled with sin. God judges our flesh to be totally depraved. In our flesh, as Paul says, God finds no good thing. God judges us to be guilty and the sentence for sin is death, everlasting death, and yet God does not inflict the penalty. Why not? We're exposed, says the Catechism, to that penalty. We're exposed to it. The law, as it were, arrests us and drags us before God's judgment seat and says to God, you must condemn this person, you must punish this person. And the world condemns us too, and the devil accuses us and says, this person deserves to die. And yet God says, I free him. I free her from my severe judgment. Why? Because the innocent Jesus stood in our place of condemnation, assumed our guilt, bore our punishment, and thus frees us from that severe judgment of God to which we were exposed. Picture that in your eye, in your mind's eye, beloved. Jesus stood before wicked, cowardly, Pilate. He received a sentence that he did not deserve. He went to the cross to be condemned. And now you stand before God. And God says to you, I will not condemn you. You deserve to be condemned. I will justify you. I will vindicate you. That's our comfort in he suffered under Pontius Pilate. Because he suffered under a temporal judge, we do not suffer under the eternal judge. And finally, he delivered us from God's curse. God's curse, the word of God's wrath, is against all sinners, against all lawbreakers, the idolater and the blasphemer, and the Sabbath breaker, and the rebel against authority, and the murderer, and the adulterer, and the thief, and the liar, and the covetous man. They're all cursed. The one who hates God and his neighbor is cursed. The one who does not love God with his whole heart and soul and mind and strength is cursed. 
The one who does not love his neighbor as himself is cursed. Scripture is fearfully clear on this point. Galatians 3 verse 10. Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things written in the book of the law to do them. And so we ought to be cursed. The Catechism says, the curse which lay upon me. I'm assured, says the Catechism, when I think about the fact that Jesus was crucified, as opposed to some other death that he was crucified, I am assured by that, that he has taken my curse upon himself, and therefore I am blessed. He was cursed. I am blessed. He endured the accursed death of the cross, and I will receive the blessings of salvation. That's our comfort. That's our confession. The Son of God suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was condemned, so that I am not condemned. The Son of God was crucified cursed with my curse so that I am not cursed but blessed. That's the gospel. The gospel we find in the fact that Jesus Christ suffered under Pontius Pilate. Amen.